Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, October 25th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We are jam-packed as jam-packed can possibly be. Ramen Noodle Express is so absolutely red hot, we may not be eating Top Ramen much longer. We may rename that, but we're going to talk about that in just a second. We've got a lot on the Jalen Waddle injury, not so much that it happened, but what's going to happen moving forward. LSU just totally body bagged South Carolina yesterday, um, much to the chagrin of those who wanted to stretch October as long as we could. That's over now. Michigan, hey, just welcome to the party, Michigan. We're going to talk a lot about that. Ohio State, Penn State, Penn State, Penn State. We're going to talk about them. Auburn um, gets another win. Uh, you know what? I'll be delicate, and I'll just save it for when we get into the Auburn game. Like I said, Ramen Noodle Express, 5-1 and one yesterday. You know, we had a couple of weeks there. And we are 61% against the number right now. Had a couple of weeks there. You know, you start soft and slow like a small earthquake. But when you let go, half the valley shakes. And if you're unfamiliar with Neil Young, don't worry about it. I was just bet 125 bucks. I wouldn't say that on air. So I just did. So cash that. And let's get into the show tonight. We've got a lot to get to. If, by the way... You are still looking to book a one-on-one session with me. A lot of you interested in maybe starting your own YouTube channel, starting your own podcast, getting into sports media, whatever the case may be. I'm going to talk to you at the end because I didn't think that I had any availability this week, but I, as it turns out, may have a couple of slots open. It's first come, first serve. So if you want to, hit me up, email joshpate706 at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter at LateKickJosh. The vast majority of you just want to listen to us talk about college football. So let's dive into it. Alabama 48. Tennessee 17. The obvious key takeaway from this is the Jalen Waddle injury. We've seen, you know, Colin, we were talking about this before the show. We've seen a lot of terrible injuries happen. And we've always gotten some back and forth behind the scenes. Anytime an injury happens, even if they show it on TV, like, are we going to show it here? And most of the time I say no. But the, the Waddle injury is weird. When I saw it happen live, I mean, I saw him limp off. Thing just didn't even look all that gruesome to me. Uh, you just see so much worse. And the point is, It doesn't matter what it looked like. It matters what it is, and it is broken ankle, fractured ankle. I'm not a doctor. I just know when they can't put weight on it, and then the head coach lets you know at halftime he's out for the year, it's probably not a good thing. So I want to address a couple of things here. Number one, that's one of the best players in college football. It's one of the best players on their team, obviously. It's my favorite player to watch in America. So not good from that standpoint. What are they going to be moving forward? You know, How does this relate to uh, the rest of their season? We're going to touch on these pretty quick because we got a lot to get to tonight, but 
I, ha- I cannot believe that we still have this conversation. And I'm not talking about my cousin Rita. I'm not talking about Granny Pate. I'm talking about people who make a living in the industry of sports media. Actual, according to them, football-minded people asking questions that sound like this. Uh, should he have even been in the game? Should he even be returning kicks? Should a player that important be returning punts? And this is ignorance now. It's pure ignorance, and I'll get fired up about it, so I'm not going to talk very long about it. Let me just break it down for you like this. The touchdowns that Jalen Waddle, for example, scores when he catches the football and he runs into the end zone, they count those for six, right? Those are really good. Those are really important. How much do the touchdowns that he scores when he's returning a kick count for? How much do those punt return touchdowns count for? Colin, do we have the rule book around? I'm pretty sure they're still giving out six for those, too. I'm also pretty sure that I hear you guys. This is how you know you don't value special teams. Because a lot of you in this crowd, the ilk that I'm talking about right now, will look you dead in your eyes and say, all three phases, offense, defense, special teams, which I did the numbers. It's about 33% apiece. And yet I got these same fools looking at me saying, well, yeah, he should be on the field third and three as a slot receiver, but you can't put him on the field returning kicks. He could get hurt. Now, this guy's been returning kicks ever since he's been in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. No one ever cared, of course, until he got hurt. So if anyone out there is suggesting to you that your best football players should not be on the football field when you're trying to score, and I'm talking about returners, I'm talking about on the gunner unit, I'm talking about coverage units, anything, Nick Saban's always put his best players on the field. That's why they largely dominate in special teams, which, as we just said, is a third of a football game. So if you got people out there suggesting otherwise, it's okay to have them in your life. It's okay to be friends with them. Don't value someone's football opinion who's telling you the best players on your team don't belong on the field on special teams. So again, let's move on from that. That's pure ignorance. I think a lot of people were taken by surprise yesterday at a kid named Slade Bolden. Slade Bolden is a guy who saw some spot duty last year for Alabama, a little bit more than spot duty. This is a guy they love now. He came off the bench yesterday. I think he had uh, either near or a little over 100 total receiving yards, and he stepped in right in place of Jalen Waddell. This is a guy who's going to get a lot of attention now. I want to make sure you understand he is a very good football player. This is not some dude who kind of ho-hummed his way to a performance yesterday because he was being overlooked, and he is very versatile. He's a guy who played quarterback in high school. He's a guy who gives Steve Sarkeesian some opportunities to do a lot of different things. They wanted to get him in games a lot anyway. It's just that uh, who are you going to put him on the field in place of, right? So now you've got him. Of course, John Mechie is going to play a more important role. Texting back and forth with some people at Alabama yesterday. You remember the name Javon Baker. It's a guy that is a true freshman out of the state of Georgia. They loved him in fall camp. Just he hasn't been good enough to surpass someone who's already on the field for them. I think they will emphasize getting him ready right now. See, the way Alabama practices and the reason they look so good at receiver, the reason they never make mistakes at receiver is because they don't work 15 guys at receiver in practice. I mean, it's the guys who are going to start, obviously get a vast majority of those reps, and they rep them over and over and over again. That's why you don't see a huge rotation of receivers for them. But now you will see a guy like Javon Baker, for example, obviously Bolden, and obviously John Mechie will figure in a lot more heavily. Now let's talk about Alabama-Tennessee, because that was the game that happened yesterday. I'm going to give you some wild stats here, right quick. Back in 2007, uh, when Nick Saban came to Alabama, they were 7-6. and six. They lost to Louisiana Monroe that year. But even that year, they beat Tennessee, 41-17. A lot of you will remember that game. They had five guys suspended before kickoff. They went onside kick to start the game. 
So even in Saban's worst year, he dominated Tennessee. Over a decade later, nearly a decade and a half later, he is 14-0 and against Tennessee. That matters a lot, especially to older Bama fans. That matters a whole lot. But that's not the craziest stat, okay? Everyone knows they've dominated Tennessee. I had someone send me this on Twitter last night, and this is public information. They just kind of uh, encapsulated it in a very striking manner. You would consider, historically, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, those are the big three in the SEC East. Let me hit you with this. Since 2008, so Saban's second year in the SEC, since 2008, he is 25-1 and against Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee combined. And that loss came in the 2008 SEC championship game against Urban Meyer's Florida Gator team, led by Tim Tebow. They had a fourth-quarter comeback, and they beat Saban. It has been about a decade since he's lost to any team in the East, and that would have been, of course, the South Carolina Gamecocks in 2010, hashtag Steven Garcia. So, I mean, the Roman Empire, at the height of their power, could not go onto a playground and do the kind of damage that Nick Saban has done to the SEC East. That is incredible. Everybody gears up for Alabama. Everybody recruits to stop Alabama. That guy is 25-1 and against the big three in the SEC East since his second year there. And, you know, for that matter, as we move on, when he got there in 07, I remember the over-under. I remember the total years for Saban projection out there. And it was, is he going to be there five years, four years, six years? This is 14th year. So, hey, congratulations to the over. Now, Jeremy Pruitt drew the ire of some Tennessee fans after this game. Uh, something he said I thought was taken a little out of context. But some, some of you heard the whole quote. You just took umbrage with it. I should get money for using the word umbrage, to be honest with you. He said... The gap is closing between Tennessee and Alabama. I, I had a little fun with that, as did most of you. Listen, technically he's right. Okay, The problem, as I pointed out last night after he said it, is it's also technically true that Birmingham is closer to Japan than Atlanta, Georgia is. That's true. Still a long way, regardless of which point you're looking at, between those respective southeastern U.S. outposts and Japan. There's a long way still, even if they're closer, between Tennessee and Alabama And here's the point, and this is what I'll go back to for the rest of the year with Tennessee. What is their maximum potential? On their current trajectory, what is their maximum potential? Because no one's closing any gap with Alabama. And when I say close, I mean be able to beat them. No one's beating them with average quarterback play. No program is closing the gap on the elites in this sport with average quarterback play. The University of Georgia is, is everything Tennessee's trying to be now on steroids. They have a better offensive line situation depth-wise. They have better running back situations. They have better tight end, wide receiver, defensive situations. But they are average at quarterback it, by the national standard. They're average at quarterback. Georgia couldn't compete with them for four quarters a couple of weeks ago. So what are you working towards is my point. They got to get so much better at quarterback. I'm not going to belabor that point or beat that dead horse, but I don't really, I don't care about any gap closing conversation because if someone's going to have that conversation, it's Georgia. We talked about it all week leading up to that game. That talent gap, Georgia has closed the gap. Doesn't matter because there's one position, it's very important, it's quarterback, where they haven't closed the gap. Until you start closing it at quarterback, I don't really care about that. Alabama's offensive line is probably the best one Nick Saban's had. I know that 2012 unit was incredible. I don't think that 2012 unit, when it comes to pass pro, is in the same league as this one, nor did it need to be. They are incredible. 
They're absolutely, you would think like Emil Echior would be the weak link and they just destroy people. He just destroys people on the inside. They were picking up and totally displacing Tennessee defensive linemen yesterday. Like you shouldn't be able to do on earth, maybe on the moon, not on planet earth. Also a good note here, and I don't know how much to take away from it, but a really good note for Alabama. If you're looking for marginal defensive improvement, they held Tennessee to a four of 16 on third down yesterday. So Good day for Alabama, bad day, though, for Jalen Waddell, and now they move on. They're going to play Mississippi State Saturday. I will say this about Tennessee. They made a second-half charge last year. I think a lot of people are selling on this team. As a contender, obviously, it's, it's appropriate to sell on them at this point. I think Tennessee's best football is still ahead of them this year, and I really think that there is a, a different gear that some of their offensive skill is going to allow them to catch in the back half of the season They've got some games that they're not going to necessarily be favored in that I think we may be giving them a strong look in. So we, we're we now a little bit higher on Tennessee, is what I'm trying to tell you, than maybe the general public is. All right, moving on. Uh, boy, well, let's give the final score first. LSU 52, South Carolina 24. Now, you may wonder, why are you so glum? Half of you think I'm an LSU homer, so why would I be glum? Well, I just, I was having a lot of fun with Cocktober. And Jacksonville State won Friday night. They're the Gamecocks too. So I thought that that may be a huge omen. And as it turns out, that's as far into Cocktober as we were going to get. So now, turn the calendar. Cocktober is over. Remember the week that we had last week. So I was sitting here a week ago at this time. Colin, you remember because you had to make the graphic. We give out our early best bet, which we're going to do later in the show tonight. And we gave out LSU minus six. Our numbers loved LSU. We had them winning by double digits. But then as the week goes on, we find out that the injury to Miles Brennan is indeed as serious as some of the rumors suggested it was. So he's not going to start. There were all kind of off-the-field distractions down there. And so I just, I didn't like it. So we backed off of it. I tweeted out uh, that buyback on it. The number was still out there. So you could just equally uh, bet on South Carolina. So we canceled that bet, which... As it turns out, probably not the best move in the world, but we still had a great week, so it doesn't, it's not too big a burr under my saddle. But I just, I felt like we had a lot of proper reasoning for leaning South Carolina here, and I was just wrong. Let's dive in, shall we? I think we got to really credit Steve Ensminger. Last year, it was Joe Brady and what's that dude's name? And it's like everyone forgot about Steve Ensminger, and Joe Brady deserved all the credit in the world. I'm not saying he didn't. But consider what you just saw last night. Consider Steve Ensminger having that hand dealt to him where they got T.J. Finley, who they had to get ready to go, and he starts, he's a true freshman, and he's very raw. You know, I was talking to some of our guys this week, like the completion percentage, even in high school, they weren't crazy about. This is not a deadly accurate guy even coming out of the high school ring. So he's very raw, but yet they had him ready, and they had him ready, and they handled him beautifully. They didn't put a ton on his plate. The last thing whispered into his ear by Ed Orgeron coming out of the locker room is, oh, you're going to have to go win this one for us, TJ. That wasn't what he was told. What they did is they put him in positions to succeed. 53 to 21 run-to-pass ratio. That's that's over a 2 to 1 run-to-pass ratio, which circles around to the next point that people were asking, which was, is LSU going to be able to lean on the run game? I mean, they're supposed to be able to. That's LSU football. But were they going to be able to? More on that in just a second. How about the quarterback situation moving forward here? 
Quarterback situation, you know one of the phrases that I loathe. I loathe this phrase more than I can't stand people asking if you should play your best players on special teams, and that is quarterback controversy. Because for some reason, when you have more than one good quarterback, more than one viable quarterback, it's a controversy. Uh, that's, That's people who need to fill a headline space. But as for those of us in the real world, it's a blessing when you have more than one guy you can win with. So Orgeron shut that down pretty quickly. He played whack-a-mole for a second in his post-game press conference, and he said, oh, well, maybe there's a controversy for you. Uh, Miles Brennan is our starter. Like, you know, in the preseason, we saw him and TJ Finley and Max. Like, we saw all those guys on the field at the same time, and we made our decision. It's not like we've changed our decision here. When is he going to be back? When's Miles Brennan going to be back? That's the question. Did you notice, going back to this running back point, Did you, it, a lot of people didn't watch this game. So th- things haven't gone right for LSU this year so far. And I watch them last night, and I'm watching them leading up. And you know something has to change. Like when you're getting drugged by Missouri, something's going to change. You just don't know what it is. Now, a lot of times what it'll be is, well, you know what? We're not losing with the guys we have in. We love our young guys. Let's play some of our young guys. And then all of a sudden, you just kind of snap your fingers. A lot of people have wondered, hey, when's John Emery going to break through? Been running with the twos and the threes. John Emery got the start at running back last night. Had, I think, 88, 89 yards on the ground. He looked good. I mean, he ran with purpose. So he looked very much the part that people thought he would be as a five-star tailback coming out of high school. But also, Aziz Ojaleri tears it up at Georgia. You know that. What you may not know is he's got a brother who's a true freshman down at LSU named B.J. Ojolari, who has, uh, I think, three sacks last night, four on the season now. They've got to put him on the field. He's giving them no other choice than to keep him on the field. Keishon Boutte got involved last night. So they're getting younger guys involved. They've turned over the topsoil a little bit. And there are obviously... There are still a lot of things to correct with them defensively. I don't necessarily think South Carolina, as it turns out, was um, the most qualified to put strain on you where you're most vulnerable. Uh, Maybe we see that a little bit more this week. They go on the road to Auburn. We'll see. But, man, as for South Carolina, we got a lot more to talk about with LSU this week. They got a big game at Auburn. But South Carolina, under Will Muschamp, I don't remember very many times where they've been able to string together anything. They, they, they'll, they'll have a situation where they pull off a big win. Last year, it was the win at Georgia. This year, they just beat Auburn. And it's like an island. When you go back and look at their season in totality in December, it's like an island instead of a peninsula. You know, you land on a peninsula, you keep walking, there's going to be a lot broader expanse of land. All these positive blips for South Carolina, they're just little islands in a sea of below-average football play otherwise. And I was hoping this would be different. And I was hoping they'd go down there. The point spread on this thing, guys, was three and a half by kickoff. So it looked to be pretty competitive. It was anything but. And there's Will Muschamp again, post-game press conference. You know, he employs a strategy that's smart. In the PR world, one of the first things they teach you when you're in a front-facing leadership position is people only chase as long as you run. So what does that mean for a head coach? That means when you get beat, make sure you run to the nearest microphone and say, hey, we got whipped tonight. You, all the coaches do it now. They all take the same training. So you got to go to a, you got to go to a microphone. You got to get in front of folks. It's going to suck, but you got to say, man, we got whipped. We got outcoached. We got outplayed, outcoached. We got outphysicaled. If you'll list those three things, you know, the, the, the PR professionals will tell you, okay, well, that was what they were going to write. But since you admitted it and they're really looking to throw you under a bus, if you'll admit it ahead of time, you're good. 
you know, you'll, you'll greatly temper the criticism. So that's what Will Muschamp said last night. We got outcoached. We got outplayed. We got out physical. He, he, you know, he checked all the boxes again of underperformance. And so what do we do now? Because I hear him say that a lot. Multiple times a year, we hear him say it. Third down was their best hope in this game. Because last week, uh, they and, and for a couple of weeks, they had really performed well on third downs. Kind of both sides of the ball. Conversely, LSU was coming off a performance where they were 0 for 10 on third down. Well, last night, LSU was 8 for 10 on third down. So even that didn't go their way. So I don't know what direction we go at South Carolina. And for that matter, not sure what direction we go with LSU. As we move on here, one of the things we've been waiting for is when does LSU, when, when do they have that magical coalescing moment? Where do they gel? If you've ever made jello, and I haven't, so I'm kind of ignorantly speaking about this. But Colin, as far as I can tell, don't you make it and then you put it in the fridge and then you kind of walk in like two hours later and all of a sudden it's solid enough. Well, LSU was not a solid gelatin product by week one. They weren't a football team. They weren't ready. Now, as I said that, a lot of you got mad at me. And I said, no, no, the point's coming. At some time this year, they will become the, uh, the football team product that they will end up being this year. Just wasn't in week one. What well, was this it? Did they need an impromptu canceled game or postponed game? Maybe this is it now. Point being, much as this was South Carolina's opportunity to turn that island into a peninsula, Oh, I've given birth to a new metaphor. Let me write that one down. Island. Okay. As much as this was South Carolina's time, <laughs> turn, turn, turn an island into a peninsula, what's it going to be for LSU? Because now LSU goes on the road this week. And LSU is, I think, a short favorite, like a two-point favorite at Auburn. This is their chance. This is their chance to start their season. For all intents and purposes, that's what Orgeron is probably preaching right now. Our season started yesterday. We're 1-0. It's not the way it actually works. I don't know if they'll get the league office to go along with that, but I can buy into it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. How about Michigan? Okay, I called this game the one I was most looking forward to out of the entire national slate. Michigan ran away from Minnesota, 49-24. to And I've, as I've noted before, i got some Wolverine buddies, and they have been kind of shy. they got like battered Wolverine syndrome. They're kind of shy about being exuberant about their confidence after this. Don't be. Don't be at all. We're not going to be on this show. I'm very excited. I'm overly excited about what I saw from them last night. I do not play this whole, oh, it was just Minnesota game. A lot of you did that. I've talked about this before. Listen, you can't be looking at this game beforehand and saying, oh, Michigan, upset alert. They're only a three-point favorite. You can't be saying that before the game 
And then they go out there and they just totally throw Minnesota under a bus and run over them, back up, go over them again, back up, go over them again. You can't watch that happen and then say, oh, it's just Minnesota. No, no, it wasn't just Minnesota. It was Minnesota. That's who it was. So that's a quality football team. That's a really good established culture up there. And this was a team that you were looking at, Michigan I'm talking about now, and saying, hmm, what did we actually see last night? Because a lot of times people want to overthink the room and they see a very positive reaction. They see a very positive outcome in week one and they want to overthink the room and they want to sound like they're on a different intellectual plane and they want to say, well, calm down, don't get carried away. Well, it's possible to not get carried away and still be a little bit excited about what you saw last night. So let me tell you what I saw and you can tell me if you disagree with this. Number one, Joe Milton starts at quarterback, okay? Let me put it to you like this. I think Dylan McCaffrey starts that game if this were three or four years ago. Dylan McCaffrey's not there, of course. He's transferred out. But Dylan McCaffrey transferred out because it was obvious Joe Milton was the guy. I'm telling you three or four years ago, in a different offensive age for Michigan, I don't think McCaffrey's transferred because I think Harbaugh would probably be more comfortable with him. And as a result, I think you would have probably seen a 16-14 to 14 game last night. But instead, it's Josh Gaddis's offensive show now. We have said for better or for worse after that phrase the entire offseason. Maybe it is indeed for the better. Because let me give you a point, too. Not only did Joe Milton start the game last night, he was prepared. I mean, hats off to Michigan's entire offensive staff, in particular Josh Gaddis. Joe Milton didn't stumble his way through this game. Did he look like a rookie? Did he look like a first-time starter to you? For that matter, did Michigan look like they were breaking in four new offensive linemen to you? Not to me. They didn't. That looked like a team that had a lot of veteran presence. That looked like a team that had been there before. And it looked like game seven or game eight. So you got to give that staff a whole lot of credit. There's been a lot of questions around this in the offseason. And all of them aren't answered in one week. That's impossible. But I think a lot of their internal confidence and their internal optimism, you can't say anything other than it was validated last night. Immediately. I doubt Josh Gaddis had walked off the field before he had picked up his phone and started texting recruits, getting in touch with recruits. All you got to do is say, did you catch the game? If they say yes, you say, all right, tell your mom I said, hey, talk to you later. That's all you need. Sell it, sell it, sell it, sell it. Keep selling that and then keep performing like that too. So what do you look for next? As I say, keep. Well, now you got to start stacking those performances on top of each other because That offense hasn't arrived. If you didn't watch that game last night, you see the 49 there, and you would think, oh, they must have had a quarterback go for over 450 yards. No, that wasn't necessarily the case, but it was a nice, solid showing. He was, uh, Joe Milton being the he, was plenty accurate enough. He was put in good situations, just like we were talking about with LSU and that quarterback situation. I believe this team's best offensive product is still well ahead of them. If last night was a starting point, you got to be really really optimistic about what their finished product could be this year. So, I mean, they're all in. This is what excites me the most. There is no hesitance. They are all in on a new offensive identity. Quarterback gives them a legitimate running option in the RPO game, which they haven't had before. I mean, they got really solid options at running back. That offensive line was, granted, against a very green, very new Minnesota front, Very impressive last night. So you just have to start stacking those performances on top of each other now. They've got Michigan State this week. Michigan couldn't look better last night, in a lot of people's opinion. Michigan State was horrific against Rutgers. Horrific. Can't wait for Saturday. 
How about some other week eight takeaways? Because we got a lot of them to get to. We still got a lot of show left here. Auburn won against Ole Miss yesterday. At least that's what the scoreboard tells me. 35-28. SEC officiating in Auburn games has been a disaster. Just a total Hindenburg-level disaster. I am not, as I've told you before, and those of you who have watched the show even before I got to 24-7, I don't do a couple of things I never do. I never waste time on the show questioning officiating mainly judgment calls. Like I'm not the one sitting here saying, oh, they missed a hold in the third quarter. And I don't question play calling. There have been multiple situations in Auburn games this year now where I believe, I believe in at least two instances, if not more, outright wins have been taken away from Auburn's opposition and given to them. Yesterday was just the latest example. Now listen, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to bash Auburn for that. I mean, it's not like Auburn's out there making the calls. So they're playing the hand they're dealt. So we've acknowledged the SEC officiating, okay? It's, a jo- it, it's, it's beyond a joke. It's a shame that a conference that touts how much money they rake in every year and how high profile that brand is, and you still got guys, all due respect, officiating in this conference on Saturday that are working uh, in an office uh, on Tuesday or Wednesday. They have normal jobs during the week. They don't employ actual officials. They do it the same way high school associations do. They just get paid a little bit more money. I don't like that because that is conveniently used to shield SEC officials from having to be accountable to you, me, to anyone, to media, whatever. And also it lets the league office, if it really comes down to it in their back channels, it lets them say, I mean, come come on now. It's not like these are NFL officials. I mean, these are part-time guys. Oh, we'll hire full-time guys. How about that? So anyway, as for Auburn, could be one and four, but the fact of the matter is they're three and two right now and... Here's the complimentary aspect. In order to benefit from a blown call, you have to be in position to benefit from it. If Auburn were down three scores yesterday, that wouldn't have mattered, is my point. Just like back in 2013, kick six, uh, the prayer at Jordan Hare. Well, if they were down three scores, neither one of those things would have mattered in terms of the outcome. So at the very least, Auburn puts themselves in position to benefit from this. We got what we expected in this game. Outside of you know the uh, controversy, the final was largely what we expected. We took Auburn. We thought Auburn would win. We thought they would go on the road and sort of balance things out a little bit. And they rode Tank Bigsby in the run game. 23 passes, 47 runs yesterday from Auburn. Bigsby, true freshman out of Callaway High School, 24 carries again, 129 yards. He averaged 5.4 per carry. But how about this little caveat? Dive into the box score a little bit further. Bo Nix. Been struggling a little bit through the air, turning the ball over. Well, the surest way to stop that is don't let him throw it a whole lot and run him more since he wants to run anyway. Knicks had 10 carries for 52 yards yesterday. So they ran the ball all afternoon yesterday. Now some very, very bad news out of Auburn tonight is their right guard, Brandon Council, is apparently out for the year. I think I saw Malzahn announce that as we were coming on air. So that is the position they can least afford to lose guys at at any point, but especially with LSU coming to town. But every one of these games, I don't care how they win it, every one of these games they win, it just buys them a little bit more time. And this is a team that probably has no business being above 500 right now, but they are. And so we're not going in reverse. You can only go forward. Three and two. There sit the Auburn Tigers, three and two. Now, Penn State had uh, an implosion of their own yesterday. They lose on the road at Indiana, 36 to 35. This was the spiderweb special of the week. The spiderweb special is a pretty new metaphor on the show, but it's age old in philosophy. And what happens is 
you're playing a team that maybe you out-roster, maybe the box score is so heavily tilted towards you, but there are critical factors that you don't take care of business with, and as a result, you walk straight into the spider web, and the spider web does to you what it does. I'm going to read to you some aspects of this box score, and you tell me how Indiana won this game. First downs, Penn State, 27-16 to 16 edge. Total yards, Penn State, 488 to 211 total yards edge. Rushing yards, Penn State 250, Indiana 41. Time of possession, 40 minutes, 25 seconds for Penn State, 19 minutes, 35 seconds for Indiana. They doubled them up in time of possession. So you might ask, how in the world did Indiana win this game? How did Penn State walk into the spider web? Minus one turnovers, 100 yards and penalties, O of three on field goals and did not kneel at the end of the game instead of going in for a touchdown, which would have ended the game, literally would have ended the game. So as much as we talk about officials handing Auburn a win, Penn State themselves had at Indiana a chance to win a game, which Indiana ultimately went on to do. I don't really know what more to say here. I mean, it's, it's not like we're going to sit here and ask the question, has Indiana arrived? Uh, is Penn State season over? It's nothing like that. Penn State's got a chance to atone for all this Saturday. They play Ohio State at home. Ohio State, I know Circa opened them at 8. That wasn't staying under single digits. So that is now an 11-point line. Ohio State favored by 11 on the road. I was um, was disappointed in this outcome. I really was. We were confident in Penn State. And looking at that box score, I mean, that's what we expected. You just, you can't account for turnovers. You can't account for penalties. And anyone who pretends they can is lying to you. But you know, we went 5-1 and one yesterday. This is the only game we lost, Penn State minus 5.5. When that kid did not kneel and he sort of accidentally scored a touchdown and they went up by 8, if we would have won that game in that manner and that's how we went 6-0, and oh, scratch that. It never would have happened. That just doesn't happen for us. So 5-1, and one, best we can do. That's fine. Ohio State throttled Nebraska. Body bagging special here, 52-17. to 17. I want to stress something. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when Alabama just pasted Texas A&M? It, it may have been like the final score, close to this final score. And everyone wanted to write Texas A&M off. And we came on the show the following Sunday, I think, and we said, Texas A&M's not a bad team. There are a couple of areas they don't meet the freeze point in, so therefore they were never going to stop Alabama. Well, that's Nebraska. I don't think Nebraska's a bad team. I want to really stress to you, Nebraska's not terrible. Ohio State's just that good. Nebraska's not a bad team. If you'll watch them the rest of the year, I think they'll probably be undervalued because people's first impression of a team, like people are still thinking about Mike Leach beating LSU. They hadn't done anything since. Your first impression tends to be your lasting impression. That's why a lot of people lose money betting this stuff. You got to go week to week on this. You watch Nebraska four or five weeks down the road, probably be a pretty decent team, be a tough out, and you'll say, well, in retrospect, I mean, here's Ohio State still beating people's brains in. So that's not a bad loss. Not nearly as bad as it looks in uh, retrospect. Justin Fields is um, pretty incredible. 20 of 21 to uh, either 76 or 26. Either way, it's good. Two touchdowns. And much like Bo Nix, but only a whole lot better than Bo Nix, 15 runs, 54 yards on the ground. Now, one place I was very underwhelmed with Ohio State. And remember, we pick apart the elite teams with a fine-tooth comb here. And I'm not saying anything Buckeye fans didn't see. Really underwhelmed by them at running back. Granted, one game. But Sermon and Teague, neither went over 100 yards. Just kind of underwhelming. But again, I made the Alabama comparison. What were we saying after a couple of weeks with Alabama? 
right now, all we're seeing in Najee Harris's praise, and we're talking about Alabama having the best offensive line they've ever had. Well, the first two weeks, we were saying, where in the world's the run game for Alabama? So, not surprised here, and certainly think that the run game will improve week over week. But again, as I said, they go to Penn State, they being the Buckeyes, go to Penn State Saturday, and they are 11-point favorites as we speak right now. Now, let me get to one that was our best bet of the week, and boy, did a lot of you take exception with it in the comments section. Not after the game, mind you, but a lot of you came for me beforehand and said, oh, I'll see you here afterwards, and in typical fashion, they only show up when we're wrong. Missouri beat Kentucky 20-10, to 10, and I'm going to tell you why. Because Missouri is better than Kentucky. And we thought that going into the week. And that's why we took the five points. But we also told you we're taking Missouri to win the game outright. So let me tell you what it looks like when you're better than another team. 421 to 145. That was the yardage edge for Missouri. 26 to 8 was the first down edge. I'm going to hit you with probably the craziest stat. This is the padlock stat from this game. Missouri ran 92 plays yesterday. Kentucky ran 36. Kentucky could have played till Wednesday, and it probably still wouldn't have caught up with how many plays Missouri ended up running. And a 43-10 to 16-10 time of possession, or 40 or 50, whatever. Yeah, 16-50. So, um, man, this was brutality. You would think by looking at that box score, they probably won by about 30. Turnovers do not last. I tried to explain this. Okay, Kentucky was riding a wave of forced turnovers two weeks in a row, and that's wonderful. They are totally random. Even the teams who look like they have made it part of their DNA. Turnovers are not part of any team's season-long DNA. When you have a team like Kentucky that is limited at quarterback and who is winning at the moment because they're forcing turnovers and they're plus two, plus three, it's not going to last. So when you have that situation combined with a situation in Missouri where you had a a very up-and-coming situation at quarterback with Basilak, who we're really high on and we've been higher on Missouri than most people have, Missouri's better than Kentucky. You just didn't know it because what was your impression? You still remember them getting smashed by Alabama in week one. What do you think would happen if Bama played Kentucky Saturday? So don't hold that against anyone. It's just skewing your impression of these teams. So Missouri wins, our best bet hits, and now we move on. Clemson, I wanted to touch on this right quick. They end up running away from Syracuse, 47 to 21. Listen, don't fall for this stuff. It happens every year. Don't fall for it. Don't be that guy or that girl who walks into the water cooler tomorrow morning and starts talking about all the vulnerabilities you see with Clemson. Clemson's got vulnerabilities. They're going to be there all year. Uh, an experienced and talented offensive line like Ohio State or Alabama has, they're going to be able to have some success against Clemson. They're ultra-talented, but they're ultra-young in their defensive front. Uh, this wide receiver group is not on the same level as Clemson teams of the past. This is nothing we learned yesterday. This is stuff, if you've watched that team, you already know. Having said that, they're one of the very best in America. And I don't really care how they played against Syracuse. Nothing whatsoever. Let me start that sentence over so everyone hears it. Nothing whatsoever about Clemson versus Syracuse will have any bearing on Clemson versus fill-in-the-blank for the conference title game, Clemson versus fill-in-the-blank for the playoff, or fill-in-the-blank for the national title. Won't even be the same team. You know it. I know it because we've seen it before. So there, those are the takeaways of the Clemson-Syracuse game. As for my Iowa State Cyclones, yeah, we fell yesterday. A hard-fought loss on the road, 24-21, to Oklahoma State. These are the two teams, for the record, that I picked to go to the conference title game, by the way. It had a very SEC feel. I don't know if many of you saw this game. You notice how everyone's talking about the high-flying offenses in the SEC? Anyone paid attention to what's happening in the Big 12? 
24-21. Anyone paying attention to this? Both of these teams had over 220 yards on the ground. Both teams very run heavy. Uh, Oklahoma State severely limiting Brock Purdy's ability to make anything happen through the air for Iowa State. I think the Cyclones 4.8 yards per pass yesterday. So how about this? Is it basically, is it just a tag team situation or styles of play being handed off from one conference to the other? I don't know about that, but here's what I do know. Uh, The Big 12 is getting serious really quick. Oklahoma State, next three games versus Texas Saturday. They opened as a three-point favorite. They're then at Kansas State, and then they're at Oklahoma. So that makes or breaks their season over the next three weeks. Looking really forward to that. Big 12 has been fun to watch to me. It's maybe not the highest level product in the world, but it's been really fun to watch. All right, let's continue moving here. We got to get the best bet out there. We are now 61% against the number on the season, a little north of 61%. So we feel really good. We don't change our process. We don't start betting more games. We're still giving out roughly the same amount. If you are not following me on Twitter, you did not get our late release yesterday. (laughs) Sounds very toutish. I gave you Liberty minus 13 because we found out Southern Miss quarterback was going to be out before the public did. So we handed that out yesterday morning. Liberty ran away with the whim. And so we ended up going five and one instead of four and one. You got to be following me on there and check in frequently during the week at late kick. Josh, follow me on Twitter. This week's best bet is taking place in the Southeastern conference. Arkansas is at Texas A&M. That game opens with A&M favored by 10. We love Texas A&M by two touchdowns or more this week. We are taking the Aggies minus 10. I think the number is going to move more towards two touchdowns. So listen, we've, we've kind of been hit and miss with our expectations of those line moves. What we haven't been hit and miss on is uh, being on the right side. So we're going to take A&M minus 10, and that is our early best bet. Again, I release these at varying times throughout the week. You will eventually get most of them on the Thursday show, but you need to get them when we hand them out or the lines sometimes have already moved. I told you before the end of the show, and I just want to reiterate it, I've got some open spots this week that I didn't think I'd have. And what what I'm doing every now and then, I'll toss out a little call to action. I try and be able to fit as many of you guys in as possible. I get so many emails, so many DMs from those of you in high school, college, a little bit out of college. I don't really care how old you are, to to be honest with you, that are interested maybe in sports media or, you know, maybe you're interested in this platform, YouTube, for example, and you're just podcasting and you got you got questions and you want someone's opinion, maybe who's inside of it. I'm happy to do it. I don't have a lot of time to do it, but I do this week. So reach out. It's first come, first serve. I don't have many slots available. It's one-on-one. So, you know, there are only so many of those available. At Late Kick Josh on Twitter, you can DM me or joshpate706 at gmail.com. we got a busy week. Make sure you've subscribed to the Late Kick podcast as well and submit your questions for the two Late Kick Extra podcasts. We do them on Tuesday morning, Thursday morning, and those are podcast only. You don't get those anywhere else. Colin, I think we've promoted enough. All right, for Director Colin, for Tani and Jordan on the podcast side, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great week. I'll see you here Tuesday night. Until then, God bless. God bless.